Hey, what season is this now? This is season five. Gentle listener, and welcome to uh, the great show, Project A Plus, Season 5, Season of Forgiveness, as they say. The season in which the listener forgives us for being so tardy with both the editing and the recording. <laughs> see how many weeks it's been since the last one. Okay, just going to go on the old off-brand horse website. The last episode was released on February 26, 2020, which was... A long time ago. Every time we like we become sloppy in the release schedule, we just rebrand it as a new series. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> so like that was a season four problem. This is season five. Uh, I'm in a new studio. Off Brown Horse has relocated from St Kilda East to yeah. Abbotsford. Wow. The happening suburb. And by happening I mean the place where around the corner there was a coronavirus <laughs> patient. <laughs> You're, you're gonna get it. Totally. And then you're gonna be second side recording with me. <laughs> so your life has dramatically changed uh, since last we talked. It has indeed. My life has also changed dramatically in that I found out I'm not gonna go to NYU. So. Oh really? Yeah, I got rejected. Oh. Which means that I'm sucks. probably gonna. There's a chance we might. Uh, Slit your wrists. Yeah, and uh, gonna do it live on the air right now. <laughs> Wait, so that means you're going back to the Virgin State. I mean, no. Minnesota. Yeah, I think we're, we. Well, it's a, we'll we'll see what happens, but there's a, a decent chance we'll probably leave New York City. Wow, that'll be a turn out for the books. So you're gonna tell your your dad to drop out of the race? Um, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna infect myself with coronavirus and then shake his hand. <laughs> Let nature take Yeah, he'll totally die. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good idea, actually. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Just stay away from Bernie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gotta infect Trump and Biden. <laughs> but no, just given how much they fly and interact with people, I, I assume that both Biden and Bernie are probably gonna get it. Mm. <laughs> Imagine if they both die. What would happen to the democratic process? Then uh, Andrew Yang oh, would yeah. emerge. <laughs> <laughs> the, true, the true people's champion. <laughs> Can you? Are you allowed to re-enter the the race <laughs> if you officially? I, I, I honestly have no idea. That'd be funny. I would Is anyone that. else officially still in the race aside from Biden? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, Tulsi Gabbard, who was only won one de- delegate, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think there might be like one other person, but it could be wrong. Okay. Um, but I'm 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 as dismayed as I am that uh, Biden is currently winning in the delegate count and the polls i'm excited to watch him debate bernie sanders on television on sunday <laughs> because i imagine he's gonna get like completely destroyed <laughs> like the brain fluid's gonna be leaking out of his nose and bernie's just gonna be like smacking him over and over again basically that i picture uh and i do think i do think as terrible as it would be if biden were to get the nomination watching him debate trump would be great 
<laughs> like, can you imagine these two, like, senile old people who can't, like, string sentences together? <laughs> like, just, like, <laughs> shouting incoherently at each other. <laughs> who don't really differ that much in terms of their policy at all. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. I would, I would really enjoy that. If I enjoy, I mean, be unhappy. <laughs> but I, I've become a, I became an official... Watching the debate from quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's actually, there's a suburb of New York that's been put under, like, uh, containment. Really? Yeah. This, you know, you know, you've, you've, heard of, something. Well, you've heard of Westchester, right? Yeah. So it's a, it's a neighborhood of that has basically been, like, like, it, it, there's, like, this huge outbreak there that's connected to this, like, one family. And, mm. uh, basically the entire, like, suburb has been, like, like, they sent out, like, the National Guard to, like, deliver groceries and shit like that. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> and, like, all businesses cool. have been closed except for grocery stores, so. How long could, is that going to be until it's, uh, New York City too? Who knows? Well, they might close down the school that you work at. Well, Hugh, actually I've been working more. I don't work at a single school. I work at a bunch of different schools. Uh-huh. And um, the thing is, is that when schools closed, my company offers day camp. So uh, a bunch of private schools have actually closed already, like kind of prematurely. And so we've been getting a decent number of kids uh, coming uh-huh. in. So you're you're actually a beneficiary of the crisis. Well, so, so far. <laughs> it's only a matter of time between one of those those little buggers is infected with the, the disease and then... Yeah. Uh, it's all over. <laughs> hmm. So, um, how 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 is Melbourne being, uh, Ben? I I assume that your government's been more competent than ours. Ours, ours, the Americans have it uh, responding to the the crisis. Oh, who knows? I don't know if you've been following the news about America, but I mean they've uh, been taking it they've been taking it more seriously than Trump has. Uh, it's not even Trump necessarily, but the 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 specific problem is that our like you know disease control organization CDC has like yeah. the the guidelines for someone to actually get tested are like really low, and they've like there's like a huge shortage of tests just all over the country right now. So it's great stuff. What do you mean the guidelines are really low? Or they're really high, my bad. Like the um, the things that, like the, the specific uh, symptoms that they like qualify the... for, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you'd have like a severe cough and like be, basically be on the edge of death before they'll actually test you, which is insane. So here the guideline is, and I think it's a similar guideline in most places, mm. if you have like sympt- flu-like symptoms or whatever, yeah, that, you know, could be coronavirus, you can't just get tested. Mm. You need to have that and also a connection to somebody who's been overseas or you've been traveling recently. Yeah, it seems kind of like flawed logic. With an effective place, um, yeah. Given that, uh, you know, at this point, the, the disease has been spreading kind of undetected because it, you know, takes some yeah, time well, to... Like, yeah, there's been, there's been, what do they call it, community... Yeah, infections, yeah. And uh, so where it's it's not it's not directly related to someone who's been overseas. It's just been yeah passed yeah. Maybe there's like a day. I mean, obviously there's a daisy chain from it. You know, first getting from someone who's been overseas, but oh yeah yeah. 
Um, but yeah, that the advice right now is not if you have symptoms of that could be coronavirus, but you have you, you aren't aware of any connection with someone who's been overseas, mm-hmm. you shouldn't get tested. Well, do they have any like self um, quarantining guidelines for that? Uh, specific um, there's, there's probably like a number you can call for advice and I think I saw some news article about people lining up to try to get tested mm. so I don't know that sounds like your government's doing a pretty similarly bad job then. maybe um, I wouldn't put it past them yeah your government do, your government does not seem to be the most competent of, uh, of people so from a publicity standpoint, our Prime Minister is faring better mm. dealing with this particular crisis than he had with the last two crises. <laughs> well, he's had time to learn, so... Yeah. Uh, someone shouting something. It's just someone in the street. <laughs> uh, what level of the, of the building are you on? Ground. Hmm. That's that sounds. Uh, I don't know. Do you have bars in your windows? Uh, sort of mesh wire. Hmm. Mm. Well, that sounds sounds pleasant. All right, so now I've done our bit on the coronavirus. <laughs> mm. we'll, we'll we'll get back to you more as the crisis unfolds. <laughs> I mean, we'll be we'll be supplying a public service as uh, as it continues to spread because what else are you going to do in quarantine but listen to podcasts and once you burn through all the good ones it's only a matter of yeah, time yeah, before you find <laughs> after you burn through all the other ones <laughs> this could be the best thing that ever happened to the podcast <laughs> contrary to uh, uh, what we've said so far this is actually a film podcast <laughs> ah. uh, and I, my name is Hunter and your name is something what is it here uh and oh do i have a third guest no what are we gonna talk about <laughs> the person on the street uh what, what are we gonna talk about Wait, on this is episode that billy sane <laughs> <laughs> oh man we're doing all the old bits you're gonna start singing the friend song what other bits do we have <laughs> <laughs> that's a three season deep uh callback was that three seasons or four seasons you got this i way? don't know Four seasons. I, don't I, th- know. I think both of those are season one shenanigans. Maybe. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> season one was like 40 episodes or something like that. And then yeah. Seasons two through four were like three episodes piece. I think season two was like maybe 10 episodes or something. Okay. Anyway, so uh, Hugh and Hunter, what do we talk about on this podcast? Films, right? But yeah. any old films, or we're going to talk about some specific films? No, just any old films. <laughs> okay, okay. You found a reel in the, the garbage behind the theater. That's right. <laughs> um, now we're going to talk about two films in particular. A new film. Uh, the uh, Peter Berg-directed, Mark Wahlberg-starring, Netflix original action comedy, Spencer Confidential, based on the long-running series uh, by some guy. Based apparently extremely loosely. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of the vibe I got from reading. In that it sense. uses the character name, and that seems to be about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what else are we going to talk about today, Hugh? What's the other, the second movie? We're going to talk about the bad, the mm. bad, and the beautiful. 
the bad, the bad, and the beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a weird sequence. Oh, sorry, I'm tipping my hand about how I feel about it already. Oh man. Wow. Sorry, I'll say that again. We're going to talk about the bad and the beautiful, directed by one Vincent Minnelli. You're going to take uh, Vincent Vincent Minnelli down a peg, huh? Hey, wait a minute. We're only talking about two films. What happened to our patented three-film format? What we're dropping that now? Holy shit! What's what's the world coming to? What's going to happen to the podcast? We're both working stiffs. Yep. We don't have time for this shit. Well, maybe we'll make time for it for some. We're getting too old for this specific uh, film product. But in this case, and in most cases, we're just going to do two films. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a slimmer project A plus. Come on, me Spence. I'm a crooked cop, Ain't got no evidence to send ya. My fist is gonna end ya. So, what is? Spencer Confidential. Do you? Uh, or do you want me to synopsize it? <laughs> do you remember it? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I only watched it a couple of days ago. Me too. Alright, do you want me to do it? Because uh, I, I assume that you watched The Bad and the Beautiful more recent to the present moment than I did. Literally leading up to this recording. So, yeah, it probably makes more sense for me to do that and then... Uh, I'll get the other one. Yeah. Yes. 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 Okay. So, Spencer Confidential uh, follows Spencer, who is an ex-cop, who has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, Hugh. Mm. Hmm. So, the movie starts, he's in prison. What is he in prison for? For uh, bashing his superior officer. But for a bad reason or a good reason? The film wants it to be known that it is a good reason. Because this superior officer was getting a little handsy with his wife. So Spencer beat him up. He got and he jail was also for... a crooked cop. Yeah, but that's not revealed until later. No, but that was, um, the, that was the reason he was going around to his house. Yeah, but... They don't tell you that until later, though. No, 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 no. they do. No, they don't. They do. Yeah, like, that's I mean. in the start of the film, I remember this quite clearly. Uh, he says like, on in the nar- cop. he says in the narration that um, the cop was stonewalling the investigation, and the suggestion there is that uh, you know fine. he's crooked, fine. and then it, you know it goes into detail about that later in the film. But okay, so anyway, that's uh, the reason why he's for, at his house. Thanks for thanks for stonewalling my uh, synopsis. That's right. Hey, anyway. So, uh, he's in jail. Is he popular in jail? He is. Uh, so, a group of uh, criminals led by Post Malone. Indeed. Who's a musician. Um, attack him for reasons unknown. They give him a shiv in the back. Then he gets released. He gets picked up by his good friend, Alan Arkin, playing a character named uh, Henry, who's kind of like a father figure type. Mentor. Yeah. Um, and, uh, also there to pick him up, but which Spencer does not want to see him is his ex-girlfriend, whose name I've forgotten. Sissy? Sissy. Sissy Davis. Sissy Davis. 
Apparently. Um, so, uh, Spencer has decided... He, he, this this movie takes place in Boston, which is where Mark Wahlberg is from. Boston. To note. Yeah, Lobster. In fact, it was filmed on the street uh, where on which Mark up. Wahlberg grew up. Yeah. And, and presumably beat that Vietnamese man almost to death. I was thinking of that in every action scene. <laughs> That's so funny. Especially when he beats up the cop at the start of the film. Mm. Mm. Um, anyway... So, get back on track. So, Mark Wahlberg has resolved, or Spencer, sorry, has resolved to leave Spencer. Boston behind. Spencer. 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 That's I'll our Boston, Boston accent. Spencer. <laughs> he's going he's he's to move to Arizona with his dog. He's going to become a truck driver. His dog. He starts, he starts going to trucking school. Uh, which isn't really relevant, except for it comes back at the very end of the movie. I wasn't paying any attention. Did he go to trucking school? <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> that's, where he, that's where he gets the truck that he, gets, that he uses at the end of the movie. Black he Betty, uses the truck on. at the end of the movie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you watch this movie like, I think while so. masturbating? Or... I think I was sort of doing some other stuff around the house at the time. <laughs> you were folding laundry here. <laughs> wow. Well, it's a good thing I was paying attention. Uh, so, um, going to trucking school, um, but something is occupying his mind, something that he heard on the radio and that we saw in the movie is that his old boss, this crooked cop, got killed by a bunch of guys with machetes. On the very day he was released from prison. Wow. Suspicious. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's also been another killing, um, but of this, uh, supposedly, this seemingly, uh, good cop who Spencer knew in tactical training, um, and something, something doesn't quite add, add up to Spencer, so he recruits his, uh, mentor's new, um, uh, charge, I guess. Yeah, like what is going on? I, like the, the relationship between him and Alan Arkin. Very strange. What is? I don't understand. It wasn't established uh, aside from just no. a passing reference to him being his mentor. Because at um, first you just assume he's his father or something. And so, and some for some reason, Mark Wahlberg knows how to do MMA too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so there's a, basically. Um, <laughs> Uh, Spencer is getting cucked for Henry's affections by yes. Hawk. It's played by Winston Duke. Um, and then something, something doesn't add up for Spencer, so he drags Hawk and all his friends and his loved ones into this uh, sprawling tale of creeps, uh, creeps, police corruption, and um, I don't know, drug dealers and stuff. That adequate or anything yeah, else? Yeah, so, Okay, great. So, Hugh, um, did you... Uh, uh, Peter Berg and Mark Wahlberg have collaborated together on a number of films, uh, none of which I've seen. <laughs> this is apparently uh, their fifth collaboration. Yeah, let's, let's re them off real quick, okay? Uh, we've got Deepwater Horizon, of course. We have Lone Survivor. Mile 22. And Patriot's Day. Patriots Day than this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pleased to announce that we'll be beginning a new project. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Working our way backwards from Spencer Confidential. <laughs> the films of Peter Berg. Uh, did you know that Peter Berg started in a, uh, like, ski school style, like, ski sex comedy? I know that he was an actor. Yeah, called Aspen Extreme. Aspen Extreme. Um, yeah, and that's that's all she wrote. So, Hugh, what did, did you enjoy your time in Boston and in the company of Boston, Mister Mister Spencer? Last name uh, withheld. Yeah, he doesn't have a last name, does he? Or first name withheld. I don't know. Whatever name it is. No, no, it's his surname. Yeah. Because if you look at the Wikipedia details on the Spencer character page, <laughs> God, tells us that what? his first name is never officially revealed. I wonder if Mark Wahlberg like has something on Peter Berg because Peter Berg like directed a bunch of random movies and then since 2012 or 2013 with the release of One Survivor, he's only worked with Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, what did you think? Of, did did you are you hoping that this turns into a new Netflix series? No. Nope. Alongside Bryce. <laughs> Did you, did you enjoy this movie? That's my question. Nope. <laughs> well, uh, what did you think about it then? It felt it felt just like nothing, just something that didn't justify its existence. But that's okay. There are many things that don't necessarily justify their existence, which can exist and you can enjoy. <laughs> like this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's not really a criticism, but it's also not good. So there you go. <laughs> I wrote a lot of notes about this film, Hugh. So we're going to have a long discussion. I don't think it. I don't think it was like completely terrible. Like I don't think it was an absolute disaster of a film in terms of what it's going for. I mean, it feels. It has a competent feeling. Yeah, for what the film wants to be, it uh, it succeeds. But I will say the only pleasures I received for this film from this film are of the ironic bent. Certainly, and uh, everything else just felt like. The same old, washed out, boring, too serious, bad, unfunny, <laughs> Mark Wahlberg movie. Was it too serious? Again, I wasn't paying much attention. Uh, I guess not serious. Uh, it just does. It, it, it never felt like it committed to a tone. It's bland. Like it's bland. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's like a complete disaster. If that makes no, sense. No, it's it's too boring to be a complete disaster. Yeah, it's just it's it's basically just a Netflix. It's it's the perfect Same. two star film that you're never going to think about yeah. again, and is somewhat morally reprehensible. Mm-hmm. It's got some curious racial politics, which we'll talk yeah. about, and and you know just its position on vigilante violence, yeah, and the way that's portrayed using ironic needle drops and stuff like that. Yeah, all, most of which from the from the band Boston. And uh, what was the other one by uh, Crunchy Granola Man? Again, names escape me these days. <laughs> well, did you, did you weave your brain in your own apartment? Yes. Uh, Crunchy Granola Man. <laughs> Come on, what's his name? He's famous. I have no idea. I have no idea what he wrote like the, some of the monkeys' hits, but he's a big star in his own right. I, I don't know. Like Daydream Believer and stuff. Daydream Fucking Believer? Crunchy Granola. I don't know what Fucking you're talking crunchy. about. Uh-huh, Alright, I'll look it up. <laughs> no, I'm already looking it up. <laughs> crunchy John Stewart? 
Neil Diamond. Oh, oh, that's actually funny. That's who I had in my mind. There you go. Um, I'm, I've, I've already forgotten which song of his it plays during one of these uh, Sweet, Sweet Caroline? Songs. Yeah, Sweet Caroline. Mm. That's the one. All you need to know about this film is that it thinks it's witty to play Sweet Caroline during a ultra-violent yet cartoonish fight scene starring Mark Wahlberg. The, the fight scene in this movie were so bland. Mm. This really is just a Netflix film. Yeah, it it definitely has a TV feeling to it. Where it just it just doesn't really it doesn't really have a place in the world of cinema, right? It's like they're they all they do is they peddle Urzat's versions of things that people are actually fans of. Yeah, because if, if like a lot of the films that we've covered on this podcast, produced by Netflix or at least distributed by Netflix, it feels like something that wouldn't quite fit in an actual cinema. Yeah, this is off topic. But uh, did you know that Neil Diamond started a remake of The Jazz Singer? <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> That's for our Neil Diamond special. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he apparently he wears blackface in it. So. Sweet. <laughs> anyway, let's let's get back on topic, which is Spencer Confidential. So it's kind of just like very bland mush for the most part. But it does have some, in- uh, some enjoyable things. I think the only thing that I enjoyed about this film, and again, on, a, on an ironic level, uh-huh. is the presence of Mark Maron. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's, he was pretty funny. Because Mark Maron is terrible in this film. <laughs> he is. And he has like a pretty racist line too. Which is? Where he's like watching the video. There, there's like a subplot about, I don't know, drug dealers, who cares? <laughs> Uh, and Mark Maron plays this, like, crime reporter, and they're watching this video of these this, like, um, person getting attacked by uh, all these African-American men in hoodies. And he's like, look at these animals! <laughs> so, <laughs> just some, some pretty racist stuff. Uh, but the film makes up for it, of course, by featuring, uh, you know, a, a positive representation of the Yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, but I really enjoyed the scene where um, Mark Wahlberg uh, threatens to cuck Post Malone. <laughs> Unless he <laughs> gives him information. I thought that was really funny. I guess it was uh, funny that Post Malone was in this as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he didn't have a presence, but who cares? Uh, I thought I thought the scene where uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg's uh, girlfriend, uh, they, like, talk for the first time. Or the second time. I don't know. There's a scene where Mark Wahlberg's girlfriend is like, you look good. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> Mark Wahlberg in this movie does not look good. <laughs> he looks like, I don't know, like he's had a lot of like um, treatment for like skin cancer or something like that. Mm. Or, he looks kind of like a raisin. That's how I describe him. An old raisin. <laughs> uh, and I like during their sex scene that the way it was shot was is kind of like that American psycho sex scene. Where Mark Wahlberg's just, like, staring at himself in the mirror as he's climaxing. <laughs> is there, like, an outlet of Wahlbergers in New York City that you could go to? Uh, I don't think so, but I could check. It's a shame. I used to have, like, a weird obsession with Mark Wahlberg when I was a teenager. Like, Funky Bunch era, or just him as an actor? No, no, when I was a teenager. So I guess him as an actor. Yeah. Um, I don't. I really don't know why I I was so like invested in him. 
I was a huge fan. This is not directly Mark Wahlberg related, but it is Wahlberg surname related, the family Wahlberg related. Um, I was a huge fan of New Kids on the Block as a kid. So mm. there you go. There you go. Um, there is not a location in New York City, but the the closest one is in New Jersey. But there does appear to be a location in Minnesota. So wow, that's that's a reason to move right there. Yeah, there's two in Minnesota. Wow. So, I guess I'm going to be, uh, that I'll do a live podcast from there. Hmm. Um, let's see, what other parts did I like? Oh, I did kind of like the weird chemistry between, um, Mark Wahlberg and, uh, uh, Alan Arkin and, and Winston Duke, where it does kind of feel like, uh, Alan Arkin and, and Mark Wahlberg are like, <laughs> I hope this isn't sound homophobic, but there's kind of like a, uh, like he's a gay older man and he's like the young tricks that he's like, you know, <laughs> supporting, doing himself into thinking that they love him, hmm. um, giving them, uh, you know, money and, and shelter so they can have sex with them. Uh, and it, it definitely did feel like, uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg's reaction to this was as if, uh, he'd found his lover with another man, uh, at the beginning. So I kind of, I definitely, uh, Felt that vibe. I don't know if he got the same. Yeah, there is a homoerotic undercurrent just because the film doesn't bother to exactly explain what's going on in the dynamic between Alan Arkin's character and, and Mark Wahlberg and, and Winston Duke for that matter. Yeah. So at first, at first you get the impression that maybe Alan Arkin's just his father, hence why he's picking him up from prison and living with him. And then they make reference to him being his mentor. And then he's also seems to be like you know a, a MMA coach or something yeah. for for Winston Duke. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. What's oh, it seemed like he maybe was a boxing coach. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's, it was it's not, just it's not explained. They just didn't bother to sketch that in, so it does support a homoerotic reading. Yeah, the only if we're reading against the text, we're going to reclaim this movie for um, the LGBT community. Yeah, I mean, I guess it does. It does kind of function as a parody of heterosexual culture yeah and that it's really bland male heterosexual culture yeah yeah and then, it, and then it thinks it's like really cool but it's just like lame hmm. um let me see i like that the the like wife of the other cop who gets killed basically her entire function of the movie is to like cry and scream and that's it <laughs> and that's what she yes. does in everything that she's in uh i really enjoyed the scene where mark Wahlberg's superior got gets killed because the, the logic of it is so funny, where he's, like, driving in his car, and he's, like, talking to his daughter on the phone, and you're like, oh, he's going to die. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's just what happens in movies like this to, to people who have daughters. <laughs> Sorry to say. Um, and also, I, I thought it was really strange that, uh, so Bokeem Woodbine plays Mark Wahlberg's uh, erstwhile partner, um, who eventually is revealed to be a drug kingpin or something. Um, and... Mark Wahlberg keeps on calling him brother at this movie, which I thought was really weird. <laughs> there's, there's a very sort of strange relationship this movie has to race in general, though. Yeah. Because um, all the black people in it, you know, basically their their stories are subservient to, to Mark Wahlberg, and um, I don't know. It does kind of seem like he's trading, like, one, you know, good black guy out for another one at the end. Bokeem Woodbine, uh, our listeners will recognize from our In the Shadow of the Moon episode. I forgot that he was in that. Playing another, like, cop partner. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Another sort of marginalized role. 
He features twice on our podcast prior to this, actually, because uh, he was in Homecoming. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. What are we talking about? Are we talking about Spencer Confidential? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very uh, forgettable film. It's a struggle to even remember what it's about. It's just nothing. Um, it's just a Netflix yeah. film. Yeah. I really don't know what to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> it is a film that really typifies their approach to making terrible content. So I'm pretty sure I wrote no notes, but I'm just going to check. I think I wrote. I think I put something on my phone. Uh, these are my notes. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the? <laughs> this bit was funny. This bit was funny. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know how much of this was intended on the part of the filmmakers. I'm assuming it wasn't intended to be as funny as I found it, but. There's a section where he he's in trucking school or whatever. Mm. Or he's in school. I don't know what he's doing. Obviously, he wasn't paying he's, attention, as we've already established. But he's in some sort of classroom set up. It's, it's trucking and school. And he's trying to... He's thinking about the murder of the police officer. And he writes on a piece of paper, Who killed Boylan? Why? And then underlines them, as if that's how thinking works. Well, he, he, got, he got the memento disease, so... Just write it down. Yeah, I thought that was funny, too. Um, and the other thing I wrote down, Mark Maron, Sublime Cameo, we've already covered that. Last note is a horrible soundtrack. <laughs> you don't like the Boston songs, bro? I don't mind Boston, but there's a lot of shitty nonsense on this soundtrack as well. There's a lot of very generic music. Like classic rock, yeah. But uh, I think we can agree a bad, bad movie. Yep. Uh, I'm sure that neither of us will ever think about this movie again until... Netflix releases a sequel, which we're, of course, going to cover on the podcast. It's, it's again, it's one of those uniquely frustrating cases that, that Netflix specializes in, in which it's not bad enough to warrant attention for its flaws and, uh, you know, not bad enough that it's worth seeking out for that reason mm. and then not good enough to qualify as anything worth your time either, so... It's just in this this nether region between enjoyable disasters and good cinema. Mm. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Tom Tom Hanks has coronavirus. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Is this breaking news on the podcast? <laughs> Apparently, in Australia. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> They're not Australia. They got coronavirus. He's in the Gold Coast. What the fuck? (laughs) Oh my god, that's so funny. He's probably he's probably too healthy and not quite old enough to die. Yeah, he's not gonna die. No. He's he's pretty old though. He's older than you think. Yeah. Um, his wife also has it. Wow, that's really crazy. Wouldn't it be funny if coronavirus claimed Tom Hanks? I mean, not that funny, but... (laughs) I mean, if you were the chuckle. (laughs) That's great, they're working on uh, Boz Lerman's new Elvis Presley film. Wow. That's why they're in Australia. That's so funny. You gotta go visit him in quarantine, bro. Like, Mm. sneak him in some, uh, you know, I don't know. US suspends all travel from Europe for 30 days. As Tom good. Hanks tests positive at Gold Coast Hospital, as if there's a relationship between those two. <laughs> yeah, things. yeah, there is. <laughs> well, good thing we can still go to Australia. Hmm. Um, that's so funny. I can't believe it. Where, where is that hospital? 
That's on the Gold Coast. I've never been there. No it's idea. Where? No on idea. On the Gold Coast, which is Queensland mm. and such. So you have to go on a road trip to, to meet him? Yeah. Uh, oh, there's a stimulus package in the works. 750 cash for welfare recipients. I better sign and up for welfare just so I can get that stimulus. In, the, in Australia? Hmm. Oh, nice. That is so funny. People are tweeting um, jokes about Castaway. Isn't that great? Yeah, so they're, they're, that's, that's some great humor right there. Including prominent Australian uh, members of parliament. Nice. One Stephen wow. Jones MP tweeted, At least Tom Hanks has a bit of practice at this self-isolation thing. Picture of Castaway. Well, that's not even a good drink. It's not accurate to the movie. <laughs> no, it's not self-isolation. Yeah, it's, it's forced isolation. Exactly. And also he's got his friend Wilson. <laughs> and also coronavirus isn't self-isolation either. If you're, oh. like, diagnosed with it. Yeah, you're being quarantined. Yeah. Weird. You can go into self-isolation if you decide to do it of your own volition. That's true. Anyway. Well, anyway, back to the podcast. I just had a breaking news update. <laughs> uh, and now we're going to talk about... Um, By the time this episode is edited and released, no one will care anymore. Or Tom Hanks will be dead. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. If he dies, you have to leave it in. Including our insensitive cackling. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, you're gonna, have, you're gonna, you're gonna rec- have release this episode this week, right? Maybe. Um, are you, are you a Tom Hanks skeptic? What do you mean? Not that you think that he's a bad person, but are, are you like sick of people saying that he's like the nice guy of Hollywood and he's so great? You know. Yeah, he seems kind of like, you know, like a, a standard, like, rich whip. So, Centrist. I yeah. And I, I mean, I can't really think of any movies of his that I really love, so... You know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm indifferent towards him, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't say he's an actor I, I particularly value. No. And he's, I don't he, mind. He, he seems like... A, he seems alright. Yeah, he's got a decent uh, presence. I, th- I think he works quite well in, like, Nora Ephron romantic comedies. Mm. I, wish, I wish that Spielberg would stop making movies with him. Yeah, but I don't find him that compelling in anything else. He should, he should go back to making movies with Tom Cruise. That's what I think. He should go back to making movies with uh, Brian De Palma. Is Tom Hanks in a movie with Brian De Palma? We watched it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Last week. Last episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We predicted this. That's an okay movie. What was it called again? Oh, Bonfire, <laughs> Bonfire of the Vanities. Man- yeah. yeah, not bad. <laughs> the reason I had trouble remembering was that was like five weeks ago or something. <laughs> <laughs> There's something I find a little insidious just about his like bland niceness. I think. Hmm. Just mean it doesn't sit right with me. You are know? you are you actively hoping he'll get cancelled at some point? <laughs> I think it would be enjoyable. It just would be funny. Like, <laughs> not Tom Hanks. Like, who cares? <laughs> but I, I feel like he's too bland to ever get cancelled. <laughs> but maybe that's just me projecting, like, you know, maybe I'm falling into his trap of, of uh, you know, niceness, right? 
the best what what do you think the best way the best scandal <laughs> that he could be involved in would be or the most enjoyable scandal would it be like a uh, child sex ring or something? Yeah, that'd be good. That wasn't like, the most fitting in a way. Yeah, yeah. That would be uh, especially ironic to watch, like, uh, that uh, Mr. Rogers movie he made. Yes. That. Um, but if he was, like, you know, having sex with dogs, that'd be enjoyable. Turner and Hooch. <laughs> yeah, if he, had, if he had sex with Hooch. <laughs> <laughs> the weak seeds came out. <laughs> Well, what uh, would you like? Podcast we are. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I really hope he dies now. <laughs> <laughs> you should download his app, though. The typewriter app. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. makes your phone keyboard sound like a typewriter. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Imagine the sort of asshole you'd have to be to install that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's that's why I'm like. I feel like <laughs> I mean, anyone who collects his type, anyone who collects typewriters is a bad person. I'm sorry. I don't really have a problem with someone collecting typewriters. I think it's actually worse to be a writer <laughs> now who uses a typewriter. Yeah, yeah. If but you I'm collect sure it does. because you like, you know, you like the vintage designs of it, and you're just collecting them, and you know, you might like to play around with them, but that you're not actually using them as a tool. I just don't really have a problem with that because they are sure. like interesting devices and a part of analog history. They, they're right? historical, but the the idea of someone collecting typewriters is deeply boring to me. It's boring, certainly. But yeah. I think it's worse if you're like, I'm a writer, I only write on typewriters. And make, and like, let's say you're, you're yeah, like yeah. under 40 or something. Yeah, if you're, so if you're precious about that sort of stuff. I can imagine, like if you're like an old school writer who's always worked on typewriters and never made the switch, that's fine. Yeah. But if you're like under 40 and you never grew up in an era where you would use a typewriter. No one does it anymore. Then you're under 40. What are you talking about? I'm just saying like if that fictional person exists, I'm sure they do. <laughs> so like old It was master. almost me at one point in my life. <laughs> I don't believe- Yeah, but that's because you're a weirdo. <laughs> but I, I never did it, so. That's, that's are, you, are you excited for his uh, his... His movie about uh, ships that he co-wrote. That's coming out or, or just wrote himself. Greyhound. What is it? Greyhound? Yeah, he's like a he's like a ship captain in World War II. Huh. He wrote it. Wow. I think there should be three actors that we cover all of their movies no matter what on the show. Do you want to hear what my, my, my uh, suggestions are from now on? Yeah. Okay, Tom Hanks, obviously. Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, and then can you guess the third one? Jackie Chan. No, no, because we're doing a separate Jackie Chan. Uh, so on this podcast, not on the Jackie yeah, Chan. Yeah, yeah. Right. Who's another patron chain of the show? Um, We've watched two of his movies for the show. Sam Wellington? No. We've only watched one Sam Wellington movie. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, let me have a think. <laughs> I don't know how you're... No. Um... Okay, I'll give, I'll give you a hint. He's got sort of a motor mouth persona. <gasps> Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> yeah. So are we going to make the pack right now? That from, from, <laughs> from the future, we're going to watch every Tom Hanks, every Ryan Reynolds, and every Mark Wahlberg movie for the show. Not not past ones, though. Just ones that come out in the future. Oh, yeah. We've committed to whatever they, they put out, we put in. Yeah. Free guy. So excited for that. Oh, God. <laughs> now you committed. Okay, 
Great. So, um, you want to talk about the bad and the beautiful now? Yeah. All right. I'm bad. You're beautiful. What we have. Um, okay, so The Bad and the Beautiful, directed by Vincent Minnelli, mm-hmm. from the year 1952, mm-hmm. featuring the actors Kirk Douglas, <laughs> uh, Lana Turner, Walter mm-hmm. Pidgeon, Dick Powell, Barry Sullivan, Gloria Graham, and Gilbert Rowland, among others. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tells the story of an ambitious film producer played by Kirk Douglas, oh, yeah. a producer whose name is Jonathan Shields, mm. the son of a disgraced movie producer himself. Mm. But he's going to reclaim his family name. Through sheer chutzpah mm. and cunning. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is told uh, via the individual stories of three people that he done wrong. Mm. He did dirty. Done right in some ways, but done wrong in others. Mm. And those people are Dick Powell, the poor man's Philip Marlowe. Did he play Philip Marlowe? He did. In the shadow of uh, Bogart. In the shadow of the moon? Yes. I don't like that you're doing these out of order. Come on, man. That's just the name that I saw pop out of the Wikipedia page. (laughs) Um, Dick Powell. Dick Powell is a writer, Mm. a novelist who Kirk Douglas lures into Hollywood. Mm. We also have... uh, a movie star, mm. Georgia, played by Lana Turner, mm-hmm. and a director, Fred mm. Amiel, played by Barry Sullivan. Mm-hmm. And the film is, is basically divided into three sections in which we see the character of Jonathan Shields through each of these people's mm. experience with him. Yes. And the framing device is that Jonathan Shields is getting all three figures together for a potential new film production. Mm. And they're all sceptical because the violence he's committed against them. Yes. Not literal. So that's the film. It is. What'd you think, buddy? Well, bud, uh, I would say that I really like this film a lot. All right, let's say that. All right. On the count of three. Three, two, one. I really like this film a lot. They taking it. They get my mark. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I thought. uh, No, let's go again. Okay. I need to feel the (laughs) lock the gates. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my Kirk Douglas was Mark Barron. (laughs) (laughs) 
I bet you were doing Kirk Douglas. <laughs> hey, what the fuck is what the fuck was? My cats. <laughs> <laughs> Who are your guys? Well, my guys are Walter Pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, I thought this was uh, kind of an enjoyably jaundiced look at the film industry, and I kind of, I like the sort of phantasmic Oriole aspect it has, or relationship it has to, like, actual, you know, people. Yes. <laughs> who yes. it very clearly references. Yes. Um, Notably, the one that, the one that uh, hit me the hardest early on was the, the Val Luton uh, mm. analog. Well, it's interesting that, yeah, it, you sort of functions as Val Wooten in the beginning, and then he shifts to something like um like David O. Selznick after after that like prologue. Yeah. Or after after the first sequence. But he, he, you know, sort of a standard for the every producer in a way, because he's like, you know, part Irving Thalberg a little bit. Um yeah, like Val Wooten like smuggling like sort of art into like what you know, like schlocky horror movies and then Yeah, well there's a very obvious reference to cat people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought this movie, you know, because of the way when it was made and, you know, the studio is making it, obviously it can't be like a, this full-on poisoned, you know, like letter to Hollywood. But I think that it is quite effective of showing uh, the way in which, um, you know, the people in the movie business both have their lives ruined by it and also, you know, find it compelling regardless, right? Mm. Um. And I think all the performances are really spectacular. And I think Minnelli's skill at, um, I don't know, creating sequences, I really noticed his blocking a lot in particular. Yes, yes. Uh, I thought really, like, there's one scene at the end of the director's uh, segment of the movie that is just, the, the way that the emotional effect is achieved is almost solely through, you know, arranging Kirk Douglas and the other actors in the scene and mm. the director. And I thought it was just really well directed and, and made me want to watch other Vicente Minnelli films. So, mm. um, who I've seen nothing by besides this, um, but it really is a film that is that you know, the correct pronunciation? Are you supposed to say Vicente? I have no idea. Okay, um, I've heard it both ways. So, but um, I and I think I'm going to watch um, two weeks in another town this weekend. So, yeah, I'm interested to see that too. Um, both of them, both of them feature in um, Scorsese's Journey Through American Film, right? Yeah, I think that's where I saw them first. Yeah, I die. It's been such a long time since I've watched that, but they both do feature into it. Yeah, for sure. Because I remember the sequel is in color. Yeah, and has Edward G. Robinson. Hmm. Um, and it's not really a sequel because Kirk Douglas is playing an actor in that, not a producer. Yeah, but it's sort of like um, a spiritual, but a similar vibe. Yeah. Using the same team. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just thought that, I thought the film was pretty terrific. I don't know what else to say besides that. Um, and cool. I, I just like its like sense of humor and the and the vibe that it puts out, you know? Hmm. Um, I will say that I feel like maybe the writer's segment feels a little, like, tacked on. It doesn't quite... It doesn't quite... feels quite as developed as the other ones in a way. Hmm. Um, but it still, like, works, you know? Um, yeah, so, I don't know. Good stuff. Cool. You like he? I like he. I thought this you was like very he, enjoyable. Like 
Yeah. And I agree about the direction. Very crisply directed, I thought. Mm. It did yeah. make me nostalgic for that time where there was a particular way of moving the camera in the context of the Hollywood studio system that I find very satisfying. And the way he, the way he orchestrates sequences in a very musical fashion, which is fitting because obviously he's famous for directing musicals as well. Mm. Um, but just a lot of those shots of the f- actual film production scenes, which we've seen done numerous times uh, yeah. since, I think are among the best I've ever seen. Yeah. What I, what I like and I find interesting about this film and also, you know, a companion piece like Sunset Boulevard mm. is that it's a type of film that I hate on principle because of films that have been made since more recent films that attempt to satirize Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, almost invariably awful. And there is something sort of smugly self-satisfied and cheaply cynical about the yeah. way that Hollywood insiders attempt to satirize their own industry yeah. these days. Um, which is interesting that you have this, this counterpoint in this particular era. Maybe not these days. Or not so much these days, but there was a period. Yeah, I'd say like the early 2000s, there were a lot of these. Like, what was that Bruce Willis movie? What's it called? What What Just Happened? Didn't Barry yeah. Levinson direct that? Yeah, What Just Happened, yeah. Uh, or like, um, what's that Steven Soderbergh film? Full Frontal. Which I can't speak to. Uh, I, I've seen like 30 minutes. Of, I've seen like 30 different minutes of What Just Happened like several <laughs> times just because it was like on TV a lot for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a teenager. But yeah, I find it interesting that there was this era in the 50s uh, mm-hmm. in which some of these types of films were being made and uh, I, I don't find these films from this era cheaply cynical at all. I feel like both Minnelli and, um, I mean, not from my own experience because I haven't seen Hollywood Boulevard, but both Billy Wilder and Minnelli seem like people who are both like critical of Hollywood and also like, you know, obviously it's what the place where they made their careers and, and, mm. and such. So there's there's like sort of a there's a you know dialectic or a, a an amb- ambiguity that's developed in in this film that's not like present in something that's just like a full on you know shitty satire. This film isn't like an evisceration of the character of Jonathan Shields. No, and you understand why these people would find him appealing. Yeah, and um, where we yeah we see his positive qualities. But, but nor did nor is it a like he does some like genuinely like really awful things in this movie too. Yeah, I also think is is to be commended, you know. But it's just it, it, the the point is he's not just one thing. He's not just a yeah. satire of a horrible Hollywood producer. <laughs> Def, definitely got some Citizen Kane vibes from it, and just in the flashback structure in general. I think in some ways Sunset Boulevard is a darker picture, but that's mm. kind of taking this genre and making it gothic horror. Yeah. Um, whereas this is this is more of an even-handed drama. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a touch of the gothic in this too, though. Yeah. Like when they go to the um, the house of uh, of uh, Ava Gardner's father, mm. Wanna Turner's father. And there's father, some in- father. impressionistic touches as well. Like there's a great sequence yeah. in which um, is it Glor- Georgia? Yeah. Is uh, after she's been sort of spurned by Kirk Douglas. She just drives into the rain, and yeah. uh, instead of having like rear projection, I think they've done it all in studio, just with rain and lights, and it's just sort of this abstraction of 
of scenery behind her. I thought that was really well done. Yeah, I agree. Kind of David Lynch-like, actually. Hmm. And I, I like the way this film wrapped up as well. Yeah, I Quite agree. abruptly, and... But I, I thought it was a really effective thematic uh, conclusion. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And, it, you know, it, it sums up the whole ambiguity and ambivalence towards this figure that, you know, they're repulsed by him, but fascinated and drawn to him. You know, by, by proxy, by proxy, like, Minnelli's own feelings towards Hollywood, too. Yeah. Good stuff. I'm glad that uh, you chose it. Hmm. Um, Me too. Great chat. (laughs) (laughs) You always had a great discussion about this movie. Good stuff. Uh, Uh, Do you have anything else you want to add? Oh, I really like Kirk Douglas in this. Oh, yeah. It's pretty good. This is a similar type role uh, that he's played before. And again, I'm thinking of another Billy Wilder film, Ace in the Hole. Mm. I don't think he's as interesting as an actor when he's like a pure heroic character. Mm. No. But when there's an edge to him, when he's like sort of this compelling asshole. <laughs> yeah, he sort of shines. He fits perfectly, yeah. Mm. He seems like the quintessential American actor. Well, of that period for sure. But it sort of seems to sum up something of the character of America. Okay. <laughs> it's like America is a character in the film. It's played by Kirk Douglas. Oh, there's a Melbourne stabbing rampage. <laughs> you should get stabbed and then collect. Not, uh, not far from me. You should get. You should get stabbed. How far are you away from your workplace? Twelve minutes walk. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay, uh, are you ready to move on to bonus features? Yeah. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. Alright. So, uh, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Because I have like 30 films, so. Oh, Jesus Christ. I really picked up the film watching in the last uh, couple of weeks. I mean, you can just mention them. You don't have to say a like, spiel about all of them. No, no, no. I'm going to talk about all of them. Right, are you ready for me to go through them? Yeah, hurry up. No, I'm going to take as long as I want. All right, so I started my film watching uh, last couple of weeks with a little film called Godzilla Raids Again. Next. Nope, which is the uh, second Godzilla movie, um, which is really cheaply put out. I think even it was either the year after the year that Godzilla came out. Um, and it has some like weird stuff where Godzilla's a dinosaur for some reason. He fights a dinosaur. Um, and it's got, it's got some you know pretty fun stuff. A little bit of boring things. It's okay. Cool. It's a decent movie. All right. All right after that, I watched uh, a Seiju Suzuki film. Called on uh, the Criterion channel is called Everything Goes Wrong, mm-hmm. and on um, Letterboxd, uh, Letterbox has it as uh, the Madness of Youth. So it's one of those two titles. Um, this is kind of like a cruel story of youth esque, you know, uh, film about um, you know wayward youth getting into trouble. 
doing stuff. Uh, kind of generic, but um, it's got some enjoyable bits. There's this great scene. Uh, and, you know, Suzuki uh, is often someone who, you know, takes sort of like standardish material and then makes it his own via style. Um, and this is somewhat the case here. There's this great scene that's like shot almost entirely of close-ups of the main character's eyes, which is really striking. Uh, and... Nice. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Uh, then I watched another Seiji Suzuki film called Take Aim at the Police Fan, uh, which is okay. Um, <laughs> and I uh, followed that up with a Paul Schrader film called Light Sweeper. Stars Willem Dafoe as a heroin dealer. Uh, that's got this sort of um, almost achingly romantic mood, which is kind of unusual for Schrader, I think, uh, who tends to be a uh, sort of pessimist when it comes to stuff in general. Um, but this film is just uh, got some good vibes. It's kind of, you know, it's another one of his like taxi driver esque films. A lot of um, Diary of a Country Priest uh, voiceover and stuff. Mm hmm. But it's got a really good performance by Defoe, and she's got a good, like, you know, 90s uh, New York City vibe, so can't ask for much more than that, I don't think. And it's a really great romantic conclusion, too, so. Uh, and then I watched uh, another Seiji Suzuki film called Youth of the Beast, uh, which stars Mr. Chipmunk himself, uh, Joe Shishido. Uh, as this, it's sort of like a, a you know, present day uh, Yojimbo ripoff remake, you know, where uh, there's these two rival gangs and basically works to something against each other. Uh, and it's got some of that good Suzuki style, but um, a little too, a little bunch of it is just a little too uh, standard for my tastes, uh, but it has a, a great, like, bleak ending, so worth watching. Mm hmm. Uh, then I watched a movie that is, is for a large section of it, uh, set in the place where you live right now. What? Australia. Not my apartment. Not your apartment. And not in Melbourne either. Oh. Most, mostly in the Outback. Uh, which is Vim Vinder's five-hour science fiction epic, Until the End of the World. Hmm. Now I do want to hear about this. Uh, so I'm going to start paying is... attention. <laughs> you can close on the, the, the porn that you're watching on your other tab. No, that's still open. <laughs> okay, great. Um, which is this sort of... Um, I don't know. Like He described it as sort of his ultimate road movie, and it takes place in what was in the near future of 1999. Uh, and there's a nuclear satellite that's spinning out of control, uh, and maybe it'll destroy the Earth. Um, but... Uh, the main character is this woman named uh, something. It's I've I've lost it, but it's played by the main actress um, from Wings of Desire. Um, sort of falls into this weird relationship um, with William Hunt, who is this man who is going around taking photographs of, um, or he has this camera that he's stolen, which allows blind people to see the images that it makes. Um, and so she's following him and then he's being followed by, uh, a Australian, um, agent of some sort. Um, and something interesting about this film is 
pretty much all of the Australian uh, Australian characters, besides like one or two, are played by Aboriginal actors. Oh, really? Yeah, it's got a very uh, large Aboriginal cast, actually. Wow, <laughs> it's not that's expecting. Yeah, and a lot of it takes place in the outback at a like um, I don't know around an Aboriginal like uh, community center place. I don't know much about it, but. So the and then she's being hunted by her ex boyfriend, who's played by Sam Neill, <laughs> uh, and also this detective who's played by uh, Rudiger Volger, who's like um, the main character in uh, the previous road films that Vendors made in Germany. So it's kind of like a complicated web of of uh, you know this like globe trotty you know science fiction stuff. <laughs> that was coherent, I think. Oh, yeah, so um, in, in terms of the, the Aboriginal cast members, we have Ernie Dingo, mm. who was like a reality TV staple. I mean, like those lifestyle-type shows as a kid. That's funny. Um, David Golpalil, probably most famous for Walkabout, mm. but has been in many other things. And also Jimmy Little, who's an Australian pop singer. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, and there's a bunch of more other Aboriginal actors which I don't think are listed on uh, Wikipedia. So, mm. But yeah, so like the majority of the film uh, actually takes place in Australia, which I did not know going into it. Uh, I'd say about like most of the second half of the film takes place in Australia. Uh, and you only get like maybe five seconds of it in Sydney and the rest of it is in the Outback. Um, but... Uh, it's just sort of this, like, very, uh, achingly romantic, I know I use that twice now to describe films, but it's got a very romantic sensibility, sort of fitting with, um, Vinders' style, but also sort of this, I don't know, like, tragic tone, uh, and it's got some of the most beautiful cinematography that's, uh, I think been in any movie I've ever seen ever, so there's mm. that, um, and it's just got this, I don't know, like, this very sort of, like, travel log it, it it really captures this feeling of international travel i think where you're it's it's got a very melancholic sort of tone about it i don't know i really liked it a lot but i'm having trouble describing it describing it uh and there's this sequence set at the end where um basically this camera which i which william Hurt has stolen um can produce these images that black people can see and basically the way that they were produced is that vendors um like shot them on film and then took them to this like HD TV experimental lab in Japan. Mm. And like, basically like, I don't know how they did it, but they like separated all the colors out of the, just these like really beautiful digitized images mm. um, that I just thought were really striking and amazing and uh, really made the movie work. So uh, though it is very long, I think it is worth the journey. So you watched the full director's cut, right? Yes, which I purchased on Blu-ray kind of a bit ago and finally had time to watch uh, last week, so or a couple weeks ago. so Featuring the recently departed Max von Sydow. Yeah, that's true. So I caused his death. Mm. Uh, just like I'm going to cause Tom Hanks' <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, and then I followed it up with a natural pairing of another sort of... Uh, because uh, uh, another East meets West film, which is King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> hmm. Um, which is the, the triumphant return of a, a Shiro Honda to the Godzilla franchise. Um, 
And uh, which I, I thought was kind of, it was okay. I don't know if I have anything to say that. There's like a little bit of satire about, uh, I don't know, like consumerism and yellow journalism, but uh, I don't know. Uh, kind of boring. But, uh, and then I, the very next day I watched a superior version of the same movie, which, because I watched Mothra versus Godzilla, which is great. <laughs> uh, because it, the movie is basically, it's broken up into thirds pretty much. There's one third that is just this really sort of strange uh, surrealism, basically. <laughs> Where, you know, Mothra has these, like, bizarre, like, little women that, which I tweeted about, which you saw. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, who like herald her coming uh, they're just really strange yeah, they just add this like really odd element to the movie <laughs> that I like uh, so it's like one third of that then there's one third of sort of environmentalist satire <laughs> and uh, which is just great uh, there's this amazing scene where this like uh, shitty capitalist guy who's trying to exploit the fact that Mothra has her egg is like washed up in Japan. Uh, CD's Godzilla outside of his window and is just like, oh shit, and he goes and gets a gun. <laughs> it's like, what are you going to do with that gun? Um, and then the last third is just some really, uh, it's just Godzilla being a loser. <laughs> because basically, this is his arc in the movie, okay? So he comes to Japan, he gets his tail stuck at a radio tower, okay? He trips and falls and then breaks up a castle, okay? Mm-hmm. Then Mothra comes, beats the shit out of him. Then Mothra dies because Mothra is old, okay? So Godzilla, because he's so angry that Mothra, uh, you know, just wiped his ass. Uh, there's there's the scene where uh, he there's like this like island that's been totally evacuated except for some school children. And Godzilla goes to kill all these school children. And then when he gets to that island, uh, he gets destroyed by these two Mothra larvae who just shoot a uh, web all over him, and then he falls over. <laughs> that's that's Godzilla's arc in Mothra versus Godzilla, which is a supremely uh, shut up, shut up. It's a supremely entertaining film. Uh, and then I watched a Seijin Suzuki film called Gate of Flesh, um, which is about this gang of prostitutes in. Uh, post-war Japan during the American occupation. I've heard that's uh, good. Yeah, it's 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 pretty great. Uh, it's got our old friend Joshito in it again. Um, and Square it's sort chips. of like this. Yep, uh, I'd say chipmunk cheeks, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and it's got this like really nihilistic street, which is pretty you know par for the course with uh, Suzuki. Um, but it's got just some really bravura um, shot compositions and um, mise-en-scene. So but it was really terrific. Uh, and it balances out with this like sort of, uh, um, you know, good good social stuff. I don't know. Good social uh, stuff. Yeah. And I, I find all the characters to be, you know, compelling. I mean, it's not something that you see very often. And like, you know, like there's no like condemnation of like prostitution, which you would kind of expect in a movie like this. Hmm. If you're watching like some fucking Misaguchi shit, <laughs> um, you know, he just really makes it seem like you know these women are doing what they have to do to survive. Um, and I thought it was really good. And there's there's some really brutal scenes, but it's good stuff. I think Misaguchi's portrayal of 
Fallen Women is more complicated than that. Oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, and then I followed it up with another movie about prostitution in Japan. It's called A Love and Pop, uh, which is the live-action debut by the creator of Neon Genesis Evangelion, whose name is uh, Hideaki Anno. Um, and this movie really has a very striking style because it's pretty much all, it was made in the 90s, it was pretty much all shot on, like, consumer-grade digital cameras. Um, and it has this, like, very, um, I don't know, it feels very sort of Eisenstein in a way, a lot of, like, quick cuts um, and images that are, or uh, compositions that are uh, really intended to, you know, flash in front of the screen for, like, 30 seconds or less than that, like, you know, like three seconds before they flash something else. Uh, and so it is really striking and beautiful, and it has a uh, uh, sexual assault scene that I thought was probably the most uh, upsetting thing I've seen in a movie in a uh, really long time. So <laughs> that was that was uh, pleasant to go through, I guess. Um, but again, it has this sort of very empathetic, um, you know, feel towards this group of young schoolgirls whose lives are sort of like... Um, I don't know. It's kind of like the standard, like, you know, turn of the century Japanese theme where, you know, these women basically feel like they have no future and, you know, sort of turn to whatever um, things they think will give their life meaning. So it's good stuff. Uh, and then I watched another movie about Japan, <laughs> which is Ghidorah, the Three-Headed Monster, uh, which is um, kind of, I'm trying to remember what this, this one's about. <laughs> it's another Godzilla film. Um, oh yes. So this movie also has a sort of a streak of surrealism because, um, some of the plot, uh, revolves around a, um, princess from a fictional country who gets kind of possessed by this woman from Venus who is like, uh, you guys are going to get killed by Ghidorah unless these monsters start working together. Um, and probably the best thing in the movie is when Mothra has to convince, um, Rodon and Godzilla to stop like being like petty and start fighting Go- uh, Ghidorah, which is really funny. Um, let's see what else. I, then I watched a movie I'd never seen before, uh, which I really enjoyed, which is um, John Woo's Hard Boiled. Mmm, finally got into the pink yeah, Woo, Woo uh, which is just a supremely enjoyable film. Mm. <laughs> I feel like, you know, you have all these expectations going into a movie like that where, you're, you know, you hear it's, like, one of the best action movies of all time. And, uh, you know, at the last, like, 30 minutes of it, when they're in the hospital, it's just, like, having, like, 10 orgasms in a row, so. I really need to revisit those films because I've only watched them as, like, a teenager. Mm. Well, uh, I really liked Hard Boiled a lot, so. Mm. I do remember <laughs> the I... hospital shootout. I don't remember that much about the rest of the film. Uh, it's It's pretty terrific. I mean, you know, there's, like, the same sort of, like, quasi-fascist, like, endorsement of police violence that you see in, uh... Yeah, yeah. American action films, but, you know, that's... And and Hong Kong action films. Yeah. So, that's a little, uh, uh, troubling, but what can you do? I mean, is it troubling? I mean, I don't... I honestly don't care about, like, the politics of some of these old action films. It doesn't... I don't need them to endorse my worldview. But, I mean, it's just in the, the sense that... You know, I mean, I guess it's a little... It's it's totally different now, he back on it, where it's like, oh, you know, yeah. this is emblematic of the, the time that it was made. Mm. But if 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 it's if this is the only, like, 
you know, political viewpoint that mainstream cinema is putting forward, I think there is something troubling about, you know, endorsing this fascistic, like, violence, so... Mm. I don't know, but great film, so whatever. You, you would have preferred the version where they put away their guns and, and work on, like, restorative and, justice. And, no, no, where they put away their guns. And preventative and start, measures. <laughs> no, they put away their guns, and they start agitating for Hong Kong to be put under Chinese control. <laughs> uh, I do like that the, the fact of the impending handover, like, sort of finds its way into even movies like this, you know? Where it's like there's like tossed away lines about asking if characters are going to immigrate and stuff. Mm. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, but I, yeah, I just really enjoyed this. I, I My favorite part about it, or, I mean, there's so many parts to enjoy, but both uh, Tony Leung, who I did not know was in this before I watched it actually, mm. uh, and Chai and Fat are just like really uh, cool in this movie. <laughs> and I'll say they look, they look really good. They look really attractive. Um, so. And uh, I just, yeah, I'm going to watch The Killer next, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so then I got, after taking that brief sojourn to uh, to Hong Kong, I went back to Japan and watched Invasion of the Astro Monster, uh, which is a pretty bad Godzilla movie. Um, it mostly is about, it's just like this stupid alien invasion plot. Who cares? It's pretty boring. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, you want me to talk more about it? <laughs> It does have this great scene where after Godzilla beats the head of King Ghidorah, he does this little dance, which I thought was really funny. Uh, the rest of the movie is just kind of like, who cares? It doesn't even have that many great like destruction sequences. So I forgot to talk about this, pass. but have you seen Peter Berg's directorial debut? Pretty Bad Things? Or Very Bad Things. Uh, I have not. It's one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. I hate it so isn't much. It star- isn't John Favreau starring He is indeed in it. Among others, among Christian Slater and Co. Mm. Well, I've never seen such that, a so. piece of shit. Uh, I haven't seen a single other movie that Peter Berg has directed. So. You know that post Tarantino '90s era of like dark, edgy black comedies. Yes, that sort of falls into that. It's the very worst example of that. Mm. Maybe we should watch it for the show. I've seen it. Actually, that might be a fun uh, project to do. Is like films that we historically think of as our least favorite films of all time. <laughs> uh, like Suicide Squad for me. Mm. Um, anyway. So Invasion of the Astro Monster. Uh, and that, w- that was to be Ashiro Honda's last Godzilla film for a spell. Uh, but then he came back. Um, <laughs> and then I followed that up with another Seiji Suzuki film called Story of a Prostitute. Mm-hmm. which I also quite liked. Um, and it's a film that's really critical about the Japanese army, which is kind of rare for Japanese movies during this time, I think. Uh, and it also shows, like, um, even if it's somewhat whitewashed, um, what it's what was it was like to be a comfort woman on, like, the Japanese front in mm-hmm. China. And... Um, you know, it's a film where basically all the, the Chinese characters are portrayed, like, sympathetically. Uh, and all the Japanese characters seem like they're totally insane and uh, totally brainwashed by uh, this crazy, like, death cult fascist ideology. So, uh, I liked it because of that. Um, yep. Yeah. And then I uh, uh, I watched a documentary called Vim Vendors in Tokyo, which is just a behind-the-scenes documentary about uh, Until the End of the World, because part of the movie is shot in 
in Tokyo and stars um, uh, that Ozu guy. You know who I'm talking about. The uh, old young guy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's in it. Um, and so there's some parts of it that are interesting for that reason, but some parts of it are just boring, so not worth a watch. Uh, I followed that up with Ebira Horror of the Deep, which is the first um, uh, Godzilla film directed by Jun Fukuda, who would be the other big like Godzilla director in the Showa era. Uh, this movie's pretty fun. Um, it takes place on an island for the most part, which is kind of different from the urban settings of most Godzilla films. Uh, and uh, it has a great scene where uh, a random giant eagle flies like Godzilla and he blows it up with his nuclear breath and then there's all these planes that are coming at him and this like pop star song start, starts playing and he just like starts swatting them out of the sky. Very amusing. Uh, and then I watched a film that you've seen called uh, Fearless Hyena. <laughs> mm. Which I downloaded forever ago and finally watched and... Uh, I enjoyed it. I didn't... I don't know. It didn't quite have that, like, peak Jackie Chan vibe for me, you know? Um, And I understand this is, like, an earlier phrase in his persona, you know, when he was mostly doing, like, Drunken Master-style films. Um, But, uh, you know, like, it feels a little too um, repetitious for me to totally get on board. But, obviously, there's a lot of enjoyable fight scenes in there anyway, so... On Saturday, I went to the movies and saw one of my favorite films of all time, an anime film called Ghost of the Shell. Uh, you like that movie. Do I? <laughs> you rated it three and I a half stars I can't even commit to I like that movie because I haven't seen it since I was like 12. <laughs> you, just, you need to start watching more movies, bro. That's not about watching more movies, going back and watching films I've already seen. Yeah. If I should if I should watch more movies, I should watch more movies I haven't seen. You should you should mix it up. Anyway, Ghost of the Shell. Uh, you know, it's a good anime movie about you know finding yourself in the future. Uh, cool. Then after that, I watched a, a documentary called The Song, uh, which is on the Criterion edition of Until the End of the World, uh, which is about uh, Nick Cave recording his original song for. Uh, until the end of the world, and I thought it was. I thought I thought uh, the song was pretty. Uh, the song itself is a good song, but the song, the movie, pretty forgettable and bad. So, no, does Nick Cave come across like a bit of a wanker? Um, it's hard for me to really get an impression of it because the it's shot on like a Super Eight, so oh, okay. we're not Super Eight. But it's hard to understand anything that anyone was saying at any point. So yeah. it's kind of like I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Um. Uh, and then I watched um, maybe my favorite Godzilla film so far, which is called Son of Godzilla, mm. uh, which is another island Godzilla movie, also directed by June Fukuda, um, <sighs> where there's this... Shut up. Fuck you. There's this, that was uh, an involuntary yawn. Yeah. yeah that, sure wasn't, was. <laughs> that wasn't an editorial yawn. Sure, sure it wasn't. Um, so uh, in this installment, uh, there's this team of researchers that are all on the uh, on this island and they're like kind of trapped there um there's these like giant bugs and they do this experiment which involuntarily makes these giant bugs grow really big and then there's an eruption which uncovers this eggs which is like a baby godzilla uh, and the movie starts getting really great there's all this like great like super stupid like physical comedy with the the godzilla's son he's basically just like a loser 
which is why I love him. His name is Manila. Uh, there's a great scene where Godzilla like shows him his nuclear breath, and then Manila tries to do his nuclear breath, and it's just like smoke rings, basically. Is he from the Philippines? Uh, no. Okay. Um, and then um, Godzilla steps on his son's tail to make him shoot uh, nuclear breath out. Uh, there's a great scene where uh, uh, um, he gets hit in the head with a rock and then falls over. I just a really, really enjoyable film. Um, and then I watched The Abysmal Man, which we're going to talk about next week. And then I followed that up with a film called Rodan, uh, which is another kaiju film, also directed by Shiro Honda, uh, which has a very sort of strange vibe, because basically the first 40 minutes are kind of like, almost like a Soviet social realist movie about like, workplace accidents in in the mines. (laughs) But with like, these giant monster bugs in it. And Rodan doesn't show up until, like, the 40-minute mark. Rodan is not an especially exciting monster, because basically his only power is to flap his wings and make buildings fall over and stuff. Uh, he just sort of, like, flies around. Uh, and this movie definitely feels sort of like a Godzilla ripoff, in that it sort of tries to give its monster like a tragic death event, but unlike Godzilla, where it kind of feels earned, it just sort of is like, okay, I guess Rodan is dying now, I don't really care. Hmm. Um, but uh, an odd film. It's got some pretty good, uh, you know, city destruction. Um, and, uh, I like it. That's Rodan. City and, and finally, Hugh, I risked coronavirus to go see Ben Affleck in The Way Back last night with a group of my friends. Mm. Uh, and this Why did you where, make this decision? Uh, I didn't, I, well, I had seen trailers to this movie and I thought it looked really bad in a way that seemed amusing to me. Hmm. Um, and then my friends all wanted to see it. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so they um, legit wanted to see it? And you ironically wanted to see it? I would say it was like 50-50 split between... Okay. Some of my friends ironically wanted to see it. I super ironically wanted to see it. Uh, basically, my, one of my friends and I ruined it by laughing throughout the entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, where it's just like this, like, you know, it's such a standard... It just feels like a Manchester by the sea of it. Like worse, basically. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. It's almost. It's almost like the same beats, almost. Um, ben Affleck is like. I mean, obviously, this is like a really personal film for him, <laughs> but he's just not that good at it, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> and uh, he basically basically just conveys alcoholism and world weariness by squinting a lot, <laughs> which is <laughs> funny. <laughs> uh, there's this great. Uh, it, it's it's sort of like a hypocritical in a way because. Um, you know, like how you expect in a Hollywood movie, there's all this like, you know, turning to the camera to show products, right? And there's this mm. great scene where he's like drinking a beer by himself at his kitchen table. Like the logo has been turned to face the camera. <laughs> that was really funny. Um, but uh, it, it actually kind of reminded me of uh, Spitzer Confidential in a way. <laughs> uh, it was a little better. It was a little infused, a little more personality than that. But, you know, it's basically the story of this, uh, you know, white man who is... <laughs> achieves some sort of redemption by uh, being propped up by a bunch of um, younger uh, people of color. So, um, And you know what? I don't. I really don't give a shit about uh, basketball, which is what this movie's about. And uh, watching the games is really boring. Hmm. Um, so it's it basically just like a parody of alcoholism, pretty much. And it just, it, it's just everything is like the exact standard beat that you'd expect. Um, this has some pretty, like, amusing moments. There's this great bit where, I don't know, there's, like, some part where he's talking about 
you know, doing drugs, right? And there's like a quiet moment in this in this speech, and someone in our theater like opened the opened a can of some sort at that moment. It was really funny. It's like it was like we were in the movie, you. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Not that good. It'd be kind of great if if you did get coronavirus and it was because of having to see <laughs> the way back. Uh, I mean, there were people who were coughing in the theater, so mm. who knows? Um, but I would say I was not a fan of this movie. So, the way back, two stars. Right, and that's it. That's everything I watched. Oh, friend. Oh.